Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. This is going to be episode three of our Alpha Examination series. With me at the table is uh, the usual twosome. Hello, Darren. Hello, Andrew. And I've got you in the wrong order. But so, Darren, you're now my co-host. <laughs> well done on the promotion. <laughs> it was a it was a hard road to uh, plow, but I finally was able to uh, take out Andrew. And um, I think uh, you'll be happy with me as your co-host. Uh, excellent. The strategy for world domination is uh, continuing as planned. <laughs> and welcome, Andrew. How are you? Sir? So... I will go ahead and say uh, hello, all you 23s, and I, too, am happy with Darren as co-host. Uh, so uh, be careful what you ask for, Darren. Uh, you you may get it, and that means that you have to hear this British dude all the time. And that's all right. That's I, like, yes. I like the British accent, so that's all good. Oh, you sweet guy. Um, and um, I've got some announcements, but before we get on to the answers, just want to say um thanks for tony for helping us out with the last episode we did he can't make this recording so get well soon tony sorry you can't be with us but hopefully you'll be listening to this and uh, hopefully we'll get some feedback from you on the other alpha weeks that you've been attending other things i want to flag up those of you who may or may not uh, be aware andrew and i have a good friend uh, David Johnson over on the Skeptics and Seekers podcast and uh, the Skeptics and Seekers podcast over the last week or so has done an extravaganza on morality and uh, lots of multiple episodes. I haven't even managed to listen to all myself. I think it's probably about 10 hours worth uh, last count of episodes worth of discussion Christians and atheists uh, on the subject of, of morality. We touch all sorts of topics and it's a variety of discussion styles going on there. I hosted a couple of them, so you'll have me over there as a guest moderator over on Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, I had to moderate Darren quite severely a number of times. <laughs> he says tongue-in-cheek, but Darren was uh, guesting over there on a couple of those discussions as well. Andrew, did you manage to participate in any of those conversations? I so did. I was, yeah, well, so... You I only went on the... the ones I couldn't go on, wasn't it? That's right, you tried to avoid me. That's why you got demoted. <laughs> Well, I was going to say I tried to avoid you on this one too, but Darren made me. Uh, no, no. So uh, I did listen into some of them live, but I uh, I participated in the finale, and uh, the finale was four hours long. So uh, our listeners know that that's not uh, unheard of out of us. But we started the finale at seven o'clock at night. So by the time we hit the end, we were all, uh, uh, you know, it was it was almost a giggle session by the time you got to the end. But there were some serious things discussed. In the end, I think the problem with the finale was that not much was resolved. And uh, I, I think this is bound to be the case uh, when Christians and skeptics come together to talk about worldview because we don't start in the same place. And I don't know that it can ever be resolved 
to cause us to have a, the same place to start. That said, uh, there was probably some real progress made in terms of both sides laying out their positions. And if you like this style of show that you're listening to right here, each of those episodes is worth listening to. So that's uh, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com if you're interested. Yes, I haven't listened to all of them. I'm going to get around to it eventually. <laughs> so um, somebody whose blog I follow has launched his own podcast this week and that's dropped into my feed as well. So suddenly I've got multiple hours of uh, podcast to listening to and I've only got an hour and a half of commute each day to do. And I haven't quite worked out how I'm going to squeeze three or four hours of daily podcast listening into a time slot that's half that. So, double the speed, man. That is, <laughs> listening to, that is listening to them at double speed. So I really, I think I've hit all the options I possibly can for that. So I'll come up with a solution somehow. But there we go. The other bit of news is I'm going to feature in an episode on Clint Haycock's Mindshift podcast. I spent some, most of the weekend with my brother helping him with his kitchen, which isn't going to feature on a podcast. But on my way back home on Bank Holiday Monday, I stopped by in Wales to to visit uh, Clint Haycock at The Rock. So if you are, if your um, social media skills are good, you'll be able to find a photo of uh, Clint and myself uh, posing together. We look very different. I'm cute looking and clean shaven and uh, Clint is a uh, tattooed full bearded and um much more of the the biker dude uh kind of look so we look very very different it was a <laughs> it makes an interesting photograph so anyway we had a fabulous chat we recorded for about an hour and a quarter or something like that so look out for that on clint's feed in the next couple of days or in the next week or whatever um, I'm also in conversation with somebody who does a YouTube channel interviewing atheists. So if you really haven't seen enough of my face, you might even have a chance to look at my face moving and words coming out. So that's still undergoing. I've got an email that I need to reply on that. But I'm hoping that that's going to come through in about the next week or so. So there's that to do. I think that is, clears up. And what is Clint's uh, podcast again? It's called the Mindshift podcast. Mindshift. And what's the uh, YouTube that you're going to be on? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I will properly announce it when it does happen. Um, I'll I'll tell you what I'll see if I can get it while we're talking away and pick it up for the, for at the end of the show. But I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head. Uh, so, but yeah, I'll I'll try and do that. And if I don't, I'll find another way to to announce it all. And um, Andrew, you had an announcement to make. Well, yeah. So you were talking about going on. Uh... Uh, we're talking about going on YouTube and maybe doing some, uh, uh, maybe doing some moving around where people can, uh, where people can see you in living color. And as it turns out, uh, that segues right into the fact that Reason Press is working on its own streaming infrastructure. We're quite far along, and in the not distant future, uh, maybe in the next three or four weeks, uh, dear listeners. You will be able to watch us live. Uh, we're going to do a kickoff show of, of some kind. We don't quite have the topic uh, nailed down and who's going to participate. But Reason Press is going to be putting out live content. And so if you 
you know, if you have an interest in being able to ask us questions live, to put us on the spot, get us to uh, get us to answer uh, without a lot of uh, without a lot of time to reflect, well, you're going to get that chance. So, if you've ever wanted to ask an atheist a difficult question and see how they handle it live, well, you're going to have that opportunity. And more details on live streaming, what shows are going to live stream, what the time slots are, uh, where to watch, all of that kind of thing is coming up. Uh, but we will be broadcasting to uh, multiple streaming sources simultaneously. So uh, at first, the first show will likely be our website, uh, www.reasonpress.net. And uh, also YouTube Live and Facebook Live. So when you uh, when you go to find us for one of the live streams, will be easy to hit. And if you want to go ahead and go to Facebook and uh, and friend us, we are uh, Reason Press over on Facebook. And uh, so keep the live streams in mind, and they will be starting shortly from Reason Press. Right. So now on to the uh, episode proper. So the last two episodes for alpha we discussed the first four videos from alpha alpha in the first sessions so what we're going to do this time is we're actually going to go big and we're going to cover the next three weeks but they're very very similar so i think there's going to be a lot of the comments that we make are going to follow across all three episodes this is weeks five six and seven which fall into the categories of how and why do i pray how and why do I read the Bible and how does God guide us? So if you're familiar at all with the Christian message and with Christianity at all, those subjects will feel familiar to you. You'll get an idea of what we're going to be talking about. And I think before we get into critiquing the content, the first thing I'd like to throw out, and this is something we've meant before, each of these videos opens with about four or five minutes of music, of worship song. And again, as is the standard for Alpha and the videos that they do. The quality of the music production is excellent. The video mixing is excellent. The sound quality is fabulous. And in general, the videos that they have produced are of a very high quality. But we're not talk here to critique the, qual the quality of the videos. We're here to, to critique the content that is presented. So in week five, where it talks about how and why do we pray, and uh, praying to God, obviously, because it's the Christian God that's being talked about here. And the thing that very first thing that struck me about jumping into the week five video, and I don't know if you two felt this as well, is it it's a it's a step forward into the Christian tradition, so to speak, from from the previous weeks. And we're, we're in the previous weeks where we did a lot of bemoaning about the the lack of concrete evidence that we could measure about whether or not God was real and what we could trust about the historicity of the Bible, etc. Well, there's a move in week five from, from the physical to the spiritual. And week five hits the ground running pretty much with the assumption that everything that we've talked about in the first four weeks is done and is settled and it's accepted at this point that, that Christianity, the basis of Christianity that's being talked about, is, is good and solid. We obviously disagree if you listen to the other two episodes that we've done, and it runs now into how you deal with that conclusion. And there's no more attention paid to any question marks over the validity of Christian Christianity's historical claims. Is that something that you guys uh, felt or noted? Yeah, I think so. I think they had a very specific structure for an outline for the videos that they were doing. 
um, and the proofs for the truthfulness of Christianity were definitely in the um, weak form below categories. At this point, I think they're just assuming that anyone who's still here is going to be convinced by their evidences. Yes. Andrew, did you feel the same? I did, but my problem with week five is the is the same problem that I always have. Uh, so you can you know you can start with the first four weeks and uh, and try to build uh, some sort of foundation for Christianity uh, relative to historicity and and reliability and all of that kind of thing, all the stuff that we've talked about. And the problem that I have with week five is that even if you can build a historical context for uh, a Jesus and, and that you should, uh, in some sense, have faith in that biblical character because there's some historical element to it, that there, you know, there, Jesus wasn't a myth and all of that sort of thing. There's a move made in week five that I couldn't get it behind even on some of my best days as a Christian. And that problem is this. There was the, the red light analogy about prayer, about sometimes God saying, you know, I, I'm not going to give it to you because you don't need it. So that's the red light. You're, you're not going to get what you want. Then there's the, the yellow light. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it to you, but I need to be cautious and maybe you'll get it, you know, at some point later. So uh, be patient or however you rationalize the, the red light comparison. And then there's the green light where God says, yeah, that's what I want for you. And you go ahead and get it. Well, here's the problem. That covers every natural possibility as well. Right? Yes. So we used to make this uh, this kind of complaint back when I was a back when I was a preaching student, right? Uh, prayer op- operates in three ways: yes, no, and wait a while. But then the problem naturally is, if there are only three ways that prayer operates: yes, no, and wait a while. And by the way, we're we're sort of ignoring miraculous prayer, but that wasn't what we were talking about mostly in week five anyway, and that comes up later. So if your idea of prayer is that God answers you three ways, yes, no, or wait a while, well, you never actually know whether God's answering you versus some set of natural circumstances. Yes. And the the weird thing about it is I didn't see that when I was a Christian. I didn't. Yeah, that was... That was, you know, the perfectly acceptable and reasonable response to the challenge of prayer. You know, if it, if it doesn't happen straight away, then maybe it's one of the other two options that's going on. And it's not only, it's not until having exited Christianity and I look back on that and I go, well, there isn't really another option. Is there? <laughs> right. I was just going to ask, when you guys were Christians, um, how did you think that God um, answered prayer? Because isn't, I mean, if you're asking for, like, say, um, a raise at work or something like that, I mean, doesn't that involve a lot of um, mind control by God to make people, you know, give you that raise? I mean, isn't there like a definite um, cause and effect of things happening mm-hmm. that would have to happen for something like that to happen? Yeah, I would never have made that specific prayer or a prayer that was close to that category for the same for the very reason that it would come under the, I'll class that as being selfish. 
and that I shouldn't ask for things that are selfish and I should just ask for what's sufficient. And so I wouldn't pray that prayer anyway and I would justify it that way. I can't answer for anybody else who might have prayed that prayer. Oh, I well, did, man. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just, well, I was just saying that's just sort of an example. I wasn't like, yeah, just to make an example of, you know, how did the, to make it a point of how did the prayers actually come true? Since it seems like any prayer that you make, it's going to require some sort of person to help make that happen. And does God control the other person to make your prayer come true? Or how did that happen? How did that work in your mind? Um, let me try and relay a story of when uh, my wife and I moved house. Crumbs must be almost 20 years ago now. And we were moving to a new area. And we were that was when I was a Christian still. And so moving a new area means it was a new town, people we didn't know, and there was a choice of churches to go to, and we didn't really know which would be the best church. The church that we'd gone to in the town that we'd previously been living in was a Church of England church, so an Anglican church. And when we visited the town and we went and looked at the Anglican church and we saw it was a very high church, uh, we have the concept of high church and low church here in the UK so a high Anglican church will be very traditional almost Catholic and in its sense that there will be um, swinging of incense sometimes in the service and it will all be very formal and you know the liturgy that it uses will be very formal and sometimes there'll be sung liturgy and we and there'll your services that you use there'll be a book leading you through the service so all the services will have a very specific format and a low church will be much more free in terms of the format that it will follow. So, you know, you'll have, uh, you might even have somebody up at the front of the church with a guitar leading through songs at the beginning of the service. And they won't, they won't be hymns from a book, from a specific book in a specific order. And so the, the order of service will be much more broken up and you won't necessarily be following a specific book. So that's kind of like some of the difference between high church and low church and we saw that this church this Anglican church in this new town that we're moving to was likely to be a high church and we didn't particularly want to go to a high church so we we looked around and then it turns out that via a couple of people that I knew I knew somebody who already lived in the town that we were moving to and they went to a Baptist church in the town and uh, so we decided that we would give that church a try and I think it turned out then we also knew somebody else who was also connected to that same Baptist church you know, through somebody who knows somebody so like a couple of degrees of separation and I think after we'd moved and we, we drew all these connections together what we then did was we retrospectively looked back at the links that had drawn us to that church and said well this was a prayer being answered and you know, God made it out so that we these people that we knew who gave links to this church, which drove us to go to this church to make all these new friends. And that was uh, God's plan for us. And if that makes any sense to what I've said. Uh, so that that's kind of how we saw. So in terms of the mechanics of how the prayer was answered, I can't tell you that. But the way what we interpreted it after the event was that the prayer was answered because we knew these people who helped us to choose the church to go to. So did God control your mind to make sure that you knew these people? And did he specifically tell, uh, force them to tell you about this other church? I mean, how does, 
or did you just not? Those, those are great questions. Part? Those are genuinely great questions. And the great thing about being a Christian is you never ask those questions. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, what I needed was probably you to ask me those questions while I was in the, while I was a Christian, because I have to be frankly honest. I don't know how I would have asked those questions if you'd asked me those while I was a Christian. And I would love to go back and ask my Christian self those questions to see what kind of answer I would give. Because I find it genuinely quite difficult to think back how I would have answered that question. How about you, Andrew? So it's very different. It's, my, my story is very different. I was a member of a cult. Uh, they will never say they were a cult, but uh, that's the nature of cults, right? Is, uh, is, is you don't know what you're in. And, and in, um, we might talk about that at, in, during some other podcasts like we have in the past. Uh, what does it mean to be in a cult? What does that look like? But in one sense, I was in the perfect place to be a Christian. You asked the question about pay raises. And in my case, that's a particularly important one because I was a computer guy in the infancy of computing. Uh-huh. Uh, right? And, and so over the course of 14 years, I was just adding it up in my head over uh, where, the, where the curve was its steepest. I've been in the computer industry for uh, something like 30 years now. But uh, over the course of a 14-year period, my salary went up 1,300% in 14 years. And so every time, there's a reason for that. Right. We can we can track the explosion of computing starting in the the early 90s and uh, moving up. Well, even to today. Right. But uh, the growth rate hasn't been the same. Um, And so every time I wanted a pay raise, all I had to do was uh, get on computerjobs.com or Monster or call my local recruiter or what the hell ever. Right. And I could get a higher paying job. And all I had to do was be willing to make a move. Right. And so the funny thing is I knew I was chasing money, right? I wasn't chasing God. God wasn't doing things for me. I was in the midst of the computer revolution, but it was easy to tell the story to myself that God was rewarding me for being a good servant. And and by the way, if you happen to be a cashier at Walmart and you went to church every Sunday and he didn't reward you, well, you know, I didn't think a whole lot about that. So, so would it be fair to say that uh, the uh, uh, information age is uh, completely due to you needing more money? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me to speak like uh, a previously discussed friend over on a discussion board, a Christian who might make us. Uh, no, it is. No, uh, but I will say this. Um, I, I do, or at least I did at that time, really attach uh, some of the success that the organizations I worked for, some of the success that they experienced. I took more credit for than then was due me, right? And it was because, and, and here's the dangerous thing about Christianity. Matthew, I don't know if you have this experience or not, um, but the way cult members think is uh, we, we never realize 
that it's not God speaking to us. It's us speaking for our idea of God, right? And, and so in the, in the history of Christendom, how many Christians have you met who say things like, well, you know what? My God really disagrees with me. I do this thing, but God doesn't like it. No, that's, that's not how we, so you said, you know, did, 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 God, did God speak to us or words like that? Well, sort of. If you don't realize that the reason your God always agrees with your ethical decisions, you know, if you think, if you think church members can't sell alcohol, it's not because God told you. It's because that's your ethical conviction that you sort of reflect into the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and, and it goes on. If you, if you don't think your daughters should go to, to high school dances, well, it's because that's what you, you know, you think God doesn't think that because you reflect your biases into the pages of the New Testament. And so, and so in some sense, if you're brainwashed just the right way, you do feel like God's speaking to you. But the disconfirmation is... And this is, this is what I hope our Christian listeners will take away. The disconfirmation is that we are better at giving credit to other people, like, like we would give credit to each other, for differing points of view. I'm, I'm really, I really am good at listening and knowing that you differ from what I think or Matthew differs from what I think, and you are both good at that with each other and me. But where God is concerned, Christians are never able to think that God could possibly be disagreeing with them. And so, yes, you feel like you feel like God is guiding you. Hmm. And the thing there's is, a study you know, about that, by the way. Yeah. I'm sorry. And Matthew, in my specific example, we'd have ended up going to a church in that town regardless. We'd have made friends in whichever church we ended up in. So quite why I felt that I needed to look back and say that we were guided to that specific church. You know, we'd have made good friends, whichever church we'd ended up at. Yeah. And I think this is w what struck me as part of uh, some of the examples that were shown here. I think the, this episode opens up with Nikki giving an example of praying that he going somewhere a long way away and praying that he would meet somebody that he knew. And lo and behold, he got to where he was going and he bumped into somebody that he knew and uh, those, sometimes those kinds of coincidences happen quite why he thinks it was directly as a result of the prayer it was such a n insignificant example for something that should be really really powerful I mean we're talking about the creator of the universe here why is he that bothered about meeting uh, a friend you know, that far away why is what's so significant about a minor event like that and as Darren pointed out you know where, where's the mechanics involved you know whose free will was uh, was overruled there who had to make this ridiculous journey halfway across the world just to make this meeting happen yeah, well in that particular case he was he claimed he was an atheist at the time and he was praying to God I'm not entirely sure how that works but um but he had all his stuff uh, stolen. Uh, he was in America, and so he was riding the bus at nights uh, because that's all he had left was his tickets and his passport. And then he prayed to God, and the next day his friend 
uh, popped up because apparently his friend had moved into that area. So in order for God to have made that prayer actually work, he would have had to force the friend to move from England to the States and then to have a specific life where it put him in a position to meet Nikki when Nikki made that prayer. So I think yeah, that's... And, and it's the, the classic situation of why put Nikki through all that trouble in the first place. If the purpose of this was to get Nikki to believe in him, surely there's a more effective way of doing it than that. Now, it's almost like cruel, playful manipulation to to make Nikki go through all of that. You know, there are less traumatic ways. If you're that great of a being, there are less traumatic ways of getting one of your minions to to acknowledge that you exist. Isn't there a counting the hits and ignoring the misses issue here too? Because you, you kind of want to say, or at least I do, <clears throat> what was so important about Nikki that, uh, you know, God managed to make this perfect plan where Nikki, um, you know, Nikki eventually comes to uh, some sort of recognition of faith, right? Why is Nikki so important that he gets this, what seems like very special treatment, and everyone else doesn't? So why does that seem like counting the hits and ignoring the misses? Well, there are fewer, uh, there are fewer Christians than there are uh, anybody else, and it seems to me that an all-powerful God that really wants everyone uh, to come to a recognition of, of his power and supremacy and faith in him and, uh, you know, whatever else you want to put on the sandwich, right? Um, surely a God ought to be able to work out equally compatible circumstances uh, for us all. And so when you, when you look around and you see this isn't actually how it goes, uh, for everyone else, you should be asking the question, um, what makes Nikki so special, and am I just looking at this thing wrong? I think what he would say to that is that what makes him special is that he's actually following the role that God gave for him. Sure. Um, because I th cause one of the things that was said in this in this particular video is that you know, prayer is the most important activity of your life, and it is the very purpose with which you were created. I think he believes that people were made specifically to worship him, and I think that's why he um, views prayer as effective, because then you're fulfilling your purpose by worshiping God and following whatever path that he set out for you. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. I think that is what Nikki would say. You can think then... Uh, that the reason that we don't have more of Nikki's story is because uh, other people were actually granted similar circumstances where where God created a compatible universe where they would uh, get the right message and they should have gone off uh, and joined their local church and you know we'd all be singing Kumbaya together. So you can tell that story that way. What it has to necessarily lead to is that the vast majority of people are dishonest. They got the God message, and they refused to take it. Yeah, he covers that more in week um, seven, I think. But yeah, we're uh, going to get there, aren't we? Yeah, but um, but I I think I agree. It's um, 
I'm not entirely sure the Christian message is entirely coherent when you actually start looking at the real world, like for what it actually is happening. Matthew, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I'm thinking about this prayer thing in this example with Nikki. When I was deconstructing, I certainly in the early weeks, months, years even of that, I spent a lot of time earnestly praying for a sign because I was that by by that point I was concerned that I could see the road that I was on and that that meant there was going to be some form of goodbye to faith. And so I prayed earnestly many, many times for for some kind of sign that would keep me faithful, that would halt my, my journey down this road. And I got nothing. And I tried more and I prayed more. And if I thought I saw something that might or might not be, I said, is that it, God? You know, can I have some kind of confirmation? I really need to be sure because this is really, really important. You know, and you know, you know, nothing nothing came up. That I was surrounded by people and, yep, I didn't go and talk to anybody because I didn't know who I could talk to. And there was partially a little bit of fear about talking to anybody. But if one of those people had come to me and said, God's given me a message, I think you're struggling with your faith, Matthew, can we have a talk? That would have done magic. But he couldn't even arrange that. So, you know, oh, yeah, sorry. I, well, I was, I was just going to echo back into that because, so we all go through those uh, crisis of faith moments, right? The, uh, the Christians that walk away. I had a, a talk with a, uh, my preacher uh, at the time, uh, when I was going through a, a crisis of faith, I think I've mentioned this in the past, actually. I was reading <laughs> Bart Ehrman, and, uh, and I'd gone through some really, really significant trouble with my, uh, with my stepchildren. And, uh, you know, so family problems are, uh, or, are or can be some of the worst, right? But I'm also reading Airmen at the time, and so I I went to talk to my preacher about about these problems and about uh, problems that I was finding in the New Testament and uh, in Bart Airmen and and uh, misquoting Jesus, et cetera. And uh, and what he said to me was, "Well, I don't think about that textual criticism stuff too much. I don't take it too seriously." Now he had pretty good advice for the things that were going on inside the family, but that's because he'd already raised two adult children. And, you know, there are ways to, there are good ways to handle family problems that aren't necessarily just Christian advice. But the real crisis of faith around the New Testament was, and, and here's the message, yeah, don't think about that textual criticism stuff too much. It doesn't really matter. And that was a real death nail in my walk out. Mm. just don't think about it yeah. yeah there was something else that so I want to move on to the next episode because we've probably pretty much done with uh, with the prayer I think we'll just end up repeating because in the group time at the end there were people talking about prayer examples and things like that and they were all a very similar category to, of prayer that we've been discussing just now and were, were shown on video you know mm superficial things and there was nothing really concrete that helped me get over 
the things that Darren has raised about the challenges and the issues of prayer. And I didn't feel in the group time that we had there was anything really concrete that helped move that kind of thing on. There is a story that came out during that was shown during this video. The reason why I want to highlight this story is there's something similar happened in one of the <clears> other videos that we're going to talk about tonight. And this is a story of the the, the uh, young boy taking a soldier to see Abraham Lincoln. This is probably not, there may well be listeners who are unfamiliar to this story. It takes several minutes to tell the story. So I'm going to be as very quick and succinct as I possibly can. It's during, I believe, the American Civil War or a war in America. Abraham Lincoln, I understand, is the president at the time. And there's a soldier who's on the battlefield. He's lost his parents and he wants to go permission to go home so that he can bury his parents. And the the president is busy and so the soldier can't get the audience with the president. Why he needs the audience with the president and not his uh, troop commander or whatever is, is, isn't named and and uh, well, that automatically signals as a flag for me anyway. But that, I can that's clean not, that up. It was, yeah. He lost his father and his brother and there was no one to run the homestead. And that's why he needed, he needed the president to allow okay. him out of the military. Okay, right. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and so, anyway, having failing to have a meeting with the president, he go, he walks uh, across the lawn, uh, dejected, and meets the young boy. And long story short, the young boy turns out to be the president's son, and the, the young boy takes the soldier to meet the president, and all is good. Now, I'm primed for these kinds of things because I've grown up listening to anecdotes and stories just like this all the way through my Christian life. So the first thing I did was try to fact check this story and I could find this story retold a few times, but every retelling of it that I could find was a link to sermon illustrations, Christian websites, Christian ministry, utilities were, were retelling this story. When I actually tried to find if there was any meat to this story, was there any truth to this story? Was there any historical record which related to this story about the war? I couldn't find it. So my suspicion is that this is a story that probably started off as some kind of illustration at some point in the past and has grown through through the Christian web and, and is used as an analogy for exactly this kind of thing, but actually has minimal or maybe even no truth behind it whatsoever. But it's told as if it's true and it's um it's used to to give an indication of what prayer might be like when talking to god and i have issues with this because what's happening is people will hear this story and they'll go away and they'll believe this story is factually true and from as far as i can tell from my looking around it very likely isn't and it's just being told and told around and it's this habit of certain parts of Christianity to be too credulous in the sharing and accepting of this kind of story. And I think when you hear this kind of story in a sermon illustration, believe it on face value to be true, don't fact check it, don't do anything and walk out the door. You're also more likely to believe other things that people tell you which are complete fiction. And I think this is is the challenge. My issue isn't this story specifically, but the attitude that surrounds it on the free telling of fictions as though they're true, out and about and spreading them, and this whole constant priming of 
fictional narratives and accepting them on low validity whatsoever as absolute truth. I had wondered, uh, so I had a problem with the, same, with the story too. The boy that the soldier meets is uh, supposed to be Lincoln's young son, so nine or ten years old, if I recall the story. Uh, the way it was told on video, so we're talking about a pretty young kid, and the young kid uh, sees this distraught soldier and walks up to him and asks him what's wrong and all that sort of thing, and the, and the soldier sort of uh, uh, you know, just unburdens his soul to uh, to to Lincoln, the son, and, and then, the, then the little boy says, well, come with me, and he takes him by the hand, he, you know, he walks him around, and the story's quite specific in the video, you know, he walks him around to the back entrance of the White House, and they walk past the guards, and they walk, uh, the, apparently the boy just walks right into the Oval Office, and Lincoln's there with the Secretary of State, and, uh, and Lincoln says, uh, oh, well, hey, whatever the whatever son's name was, if he had a son, uh, what do you need? And he says, this guy needs to talk to you. And and the the story breaks all kinds of credulous rules that we that we should have. How many soldiers unburden themselves to nine year old boys? What is the likelihood that the soldier would happen to come across or that Lincoln's son would happen to come across the soldier at just the right time? Uh, would there really be no guard even, uh, so they talk about going through the back entrance and still passing guards, getting to the Oval Office. So no one along the way uh, sees this boy with this soldier and thinks uh, maybe I ought to ask about that. You know, the, the whole story is just too much of that just so to be true. Now, can you have fun with a, a story that's told like that in, in some sort of parabolic fashion? Maybe. But as you say, Matthew, taking that kind of thing seriously, dropping the rules of where we would normally be incredulous, I think, does make it more likely that we'll accept things like, um, oh, I don't know, somebody being raised from the dead and a few days later flying into heaven. I share your incredulity. Yeah, and that was exactly my problem with the whole telling of that story. Okay, Darren, shoot us down, man. It's your turn. You're co-hosting. Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was never a Christian, so I'm of the opinion that once you can start believing that donkeys talk and snakes talk, then, (laughs) I mean, a story about a boy and a soldier is not that far-fetched, really. So so you think that... You think the game is up? Uh, the you think you think it's over by the time you reach Genesis chapter three? Well, there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, if yeah, I mean, if we're talking about credulous, I, I mean, the whole thing about with Nikki was that he read the Bible and decided it was true. If that's your level of requirements for believing something is true, then I think we need to work on your logical thinking skills a little bit before we can even attempt to tackle some of this other stuff on logical reasons. So I want to move into to that bit about the Bible and, and take us into week six. Nikki had this, this idea that uh, he read the Bible and it just made so much sense. And that story was echoed by other uh, Alpha team members who made appearances in the 
the week six video about how and why to read the Bible that, you know, uh, one, one guy compared it to a, a crossword puzzle where, uh, you know, you know, some, you know, some, the answer to some clues and you get those words and you don't know the answer to other clues, but you don't stop. You press on until you can fill in enough to, to go back and, and get the harder clues. Okay. Find all of that. But I will simply say that my own experience with the Bible as a Christian and today, and even as a cult member, I was, I was in church even when the doors weren't open. Christians brag about being in church every time the doors open. And, and uh, as a cult member, I considered them uh, sufficiently, I, I considered them unambitious, right? You should have your own key. You should be the person holding the place up. So I was, I was one of that guy. But here's the problem. We have dictionaries, lexicons, maps. Uh, we have we have endless books written about the Bible and uh, concordances and commentaries, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And I had I had access to the best resources one can imagine. And I still considered it largely impenetrable. Now, it's not that I can't tell the stories about the stories. I can. We can talk about why the genealogies have to be right, even though the earth looks old. God's word only allows for about 6,000 years because of the genealogies. We can tell those stories. But Pick a Bible up, leave your concordances aside, leave your lexicons aside, leave your commentaries aside, and just try to read the Bible in its current configuration and ask with the normal rules of, uh, with the normal rules of reason, when I read this, does it make sense? I know Nikki said yes. It was not that way for me on my best days. Matthew, no, I don't know me neither. I always, I always had, I mean, obviously there are some parts of the Bible which are a little bit easier than others, but I always struggled uh, with many parts of, of the Bible and, and uh, working out and uh, a lot of the stuff in the, the letters of Paul and the instructions to people, you know, what, what do you unpack? And, uh, you know, all the stuff about women wearing head coverings, is that something we should still apply now? Or was that something that was just cultural for the time? And if it was just cultural for the time, then what instructions in the Bible are cultural for now? When the Bible wasn't written now, it was written at that time. And you know, all the cultural references are all for the time that it was written. And all those oh. kinds of things, I, I struggled with, with those. And uh, the whole end time stuff and revelation really did my head in. And you can have, and there's, there's such beautiful language around these kinds of theological ideas. The thing that you were just talking about, about uh, is the thing uh, required uh, permanently or just for the time? There are these beautiful hermeneutic phrases like temporary but obligatory or permanent and obligatory, right? And you can go through, you, you can go and get a PhD from Christian universities in, in hermeneutic. It's all of this sort of deepity about how to rightly read the Bible. But it's, a, but it's a failed mission. It's a failed mission. There are thousands of Christian denominations 
And while maybe some of the smaller ones uh, don't have a brain trust, think of the top 12 denominations in Christianity. Why are there 12 of them? Why, why are there thousands of denominations? It, it's not like these, these hermeneutic ideas, these exegetic ideas, how to, how to read the Bible in what order and, and uh, things like context, immediate context, local context, remote context, you know, uh, the, the socioeconomic issues of the time. When you pile these things up, you don't come up with an easier way to read the Bible. It makes it harder to make any sense of it and make it a beautiful read. But as far as I can tell, it still doesn't make sense. Darren, you've read a lot of comparative religion. What do you think? I think it was very much a creature of its time. Um, if you... If you're looking at like the creation myths, uh, it's very similar to a lot of the other creation myths that were out and about at the time. If you look at the structure of society at the time where you had a king and everything that was on the king's land he basically owned, that morality has sort of seeped into the Bible in a lot of different ways. If you read the Bible from that perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense when we read it today just because we don't have the same culture and a lot of the things it's saying just don't make a lot of sense to us this idea of god owning us as property is just sort of repugnant to us today uh, these days but if you were living in palestine at the time that's pretty much how everyone thought the king was the owner of pretty much every everything and everyone on the um on his property so it was that's just sort of how it was and so god was sort of established as this ultimate king that everyone, including the kings, had to bow down to. Yeah, the, and I guess, I guess in some sense we all wish for a, a stronger writer of wrongs, right? So it's easy to, it's easy to feel uh, marginalized in a, in a big social structure, especially when it's very hierarchical, like, uh, like having a king and princes and all of that sort of thing. So it's easy to uh, if you're not in the upper echelon, it's easy to get lost in that, to feel like you don't have value, or at least that's my guess. And so uh, you'd want to tell stories, wouldn't you, about uh, about a stronger writer of wrongs, somebody that's going to come around and balance the, the cosmic scales uh, of justice. And I do think the Bible reads a lot that way. There was something else that was talked about in the Bible, about the Bible being... Uh not not being used like a sat nav but being used as a guide and that's the sort of thing that i've uh, i'm very very familiar with i've heard that kind of uh, language in many many sermons growing up and when i look back if there really is a god who really does care about the way that we behave and has for whatever reason has, has created us in such a way that we're not capable of behaving the way that uh, he wants us to behave, so he has to give us a, a set of instructions uh, for us to follow so that we know how to behave. Why is it in so, uh, so obscurely written into a narrative that just reads like uh, uh, ancient mythical writings? 
know, why can't it be like a sat nav? You know, if this, then that good, that wrong. You know, if this, then do that, that, then that, and then the other. You know, why can't it be in steps like that? So we could still have the choice to disobey it, but then we'd know specifically that we were doing the wrong thing. You know, why does it have to be hidden behind all these layers in a book that so many people have to then interpret in so many different ways and you get all the infighting and stuff that you do now? It really doesn't feel, when you stand back and look at it in those eyes, it doesn't feel like the object that's been written by a loving caring greater being that is actually interested in a relationship with me and in guiding me how i behave isn't that sort of what leviticus is for that's true actually leviticus is a good point and leviticus is a hard read but that doesn't cover everything it doesn't cover future stuff and it covers a lot of stuff that's really not relevant now but at least well, I don't eat shellfish anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, be careful of uh, picking up sticks on uh, God's favorite day. That's a criminal yeah. offense that's worthy of death. Uh, How do you yes, take Leviticus? Sorry, Matthew, go ahead. Um, I was just going to throw in very, very briefly, those of you, those listeners who have listened to the conversation that we had with Chris Matheson uh, a couple of weeks back, he drew out an aspect of, of God in this kind of thing. Is there's a lot of absolute punishment for what we would see as relatively minor crimes. And then really, really nasty crimes don't take the same level of punishment. So there's a huge level of um, arbitrariness in the, the delivery of punishment for misdemeanors. Oh, well, so I'm going to have a hard time following that because it's it's going to reflect back to Leviticus, and, and I'm afraid it's going to get lost because uh, you've made a better point. But uh, so Chris I will just made say a better it. point, not me. Fair enough, and uh, and may he be granted the gift of eternal life, uh, Chris. If you're listening, hello, and we enjoyed it. Um, so my problem with Leviticus is how do how does anyone, and and I do mean. Uh, anyone today, if you know there's a germ theory of disease, right? How does anyone take a book like Leviticus seriously? Because it is steeped in the idea that the ailments of, of the human body are because of sins against God and not mm. because of the germ theory of disease. And, and, so Leviticus, you know, you get Leviticus and Deuteronomy both. You get a lot of this uh, sort of blood sacrifice, and uh, you know, you 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 burn birds and livestock to atone for sin. And uh, when you don't do those things, you you get sick. And it's, I I really this is a part of the human psyche uh, in Christianity that I don't understand today, and I will just say I didn't. Uh, I thought the Old Testament even more mysterious than the New Testament in this way as a Christian. And my particular cult, we didn't uh, we didn't have a lot to say about the Old Testament uh, because it's a hard set of books to take seriously. And I think Christians today know that, right? You, you want to interpret the entire world through Jesus, uh, but throw away the Old Testament. In fact, Darren, I think you just had a conversation. Uh, about this uh, in print pretty recently uh, uh, about the Old Testament law and 
and uh, you can't have Jesus without reflection into the Old Testament and the prophecies that were supposedly fulfilled. Was that you, or am I thinking of someone else? Uh, it may have been me. Um, I know I touched on it briefly. It was just basically an idea that Christians and Jews take the Old Testament prophecies completely differently. So the set of prophecies that the Jewish people say heralds the Messiah is different than the prophecies that uh, the Christians say heralds the Messiah. Mm. And neither one of them recognize the other as being valid prophecies. Right. And just to, just to help the listeners, what, what we're all talking about here in a roundabout way is week six. Uh, the discussion is how and why to read the Bible. And what you're hearing from three skeptics is, we really don't know. We, well, I think we could all answer how to read the Bible. But the why question, I have no idea. I, I, I honestly don't care about the book, and I don't care about the book for good and substantial reasons. Those reasons are that the claims of the book don't match with the world that I experience. Yeah, and what makes it even worse is that the reasons Nikki gave for reading the Bible aren't very valid. I mean, he gave basically three ideas of why we would want to uh, believe the Bible is inspired by God, and that is because it claims to be, it seems mm. to be, and it proves to be. And under mm. claims to be, he says, Paul says the scripture is inspired by God. Under it seems to be, he said, when you read it, it has the ring of truth. And then when, um, for it proves to be, he, uh, Nikki thinks that God is speaking to him through the Bible. So it's um, one of those things that there are, we have a lot of really, really good reasons to chuck the book and never look back. And then when Nikki gives his um, reasons for believing that the book is inspired by God, he gives less than useful answers for that. And very circular. It claims to be, and then it proves to be, right? This, this is an incredibly circular argument on, on Nikki's part. Mm, I don't know if it's circular necessarily. On the proves to be, it proves to be he thinks this because God's speaking to him through the Bible. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he thinks that because it claims to be. For example, he at the end of the show, he gave a, um, an example of when his father died. So the example was that uh, he was reading his book father has had died and then forget how many days later it was like somewhere around a week or two later he was right he was reading the bible and he read the verse that said um, if you call on me you will be saved um, and so he thought god was telling him that his father had called on him and was saved through that verse um, and then his wife walked in and gave him the same verse and then his study group a few weeks later had the same verse again, and then a little while later he was stepping off uh, the um, underground and a billboard had that same verse on it. So he was thinking, uh, so that's what he was saying He is why he thinks God is speaking him th to him through the Bible. Hmm. Which is separate than Paul saying that the scripture is inspired by God. Okay, uh, I'm not sure that the, so, so maybe it's not circular. I'm not sure the reasoning got better in the retelling without oh, circularity. No, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> no, it definitely didn't. But okay, I'm just so sort of pedantic, and I don't think it's actually circular. <laughs> no, that, that, no, that's fair. But but then what you ended up where you ended up, which which may well be right, uh, uh, is uh, I've got this mass of coincidences, and therefore God is speaking to me. Yeah, it's um, it's sort of a weird way to look at the world. Um, because God doesn't actually come down and say, hey, dude, your father's with me in heaven. It's all cool. You don't have to worry about him being tortured forever uh, in eternity. It's all good. You're good. I'm fine. Instead, it's like coincidence, 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 coincidence. I feel that this co- these coincidences are um, God speaking to me. So I'm going to go ahead and just assume that it is and that... Um, my feelings are an accurate reflection of reality. Mm. And it's just sort of a, that form of thinking is just very alien to me. So, yeah, and um, Nikki telling that story brought back a memory for me. And it's something that I really can't forgive Christianity for because it does put this horrible weight on your shoulders, which is completely undeserved and I was still a Christian when I lost my grandparents and I lost them all in the space of about 18 months I I was lucky in that I managed to know all four of my grandparents as a child growing up but then I got to be an adult and appreciate them as an adult which was wonderful but then they all fell in very rapid succession and it was a terrible couple of years but one of them specifically my father's father I had no idea whether he was a Christian or not. And mm-hmm. I remember in the aftermath after he died, I remember I was distraught and I said to my dad in floods of tears, I said, will I see granddad in heaven? This had been, ple- this that thought had been haunting me, had been plaguing me, had been causing me distress, it had been causing me lack of sleep at night just for the, for the fate of the soul of my loved departed uh, grandfather and my dad couldn't be sure he was hopeful but he couldn't be sure and he certainly didn't have the assurance that that Nicky had uh, in the story you know that kind of doubt niggles and it's unhealthy and it just plagues at you and it taints the memories that you have of elder relatives who you absolutely adore because I adored my all my grandparents but when you have this niggling doubt about them after they've gone because of a religion, it spoils that memory. It spoils that experience. And it takes from that experience something that's beautiful and something that should be treasured. And I can't forgive Christianity for doing that to me. Man, you've just shined the light down the path of what will heaven be like when we don't have the people that we love. And I know that's not what this show is about. And so I'm not going to do that. But... I, I just want to point out how much cognitive dissonance there has to be in saving the story in the situation like you're talking about. And that had to be a really, really hard time, right? And, and to try to rescue Christianity out of that dissonance is, is one of the worst things about the enterprise of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there were a couple of clips in the previous video and in this video which didn't seem to fit 
the the focus of the videos. I just want to quickly skip over those because then, and then I want to jump onto another factual claim that's made in uh, episodes in week six. So back in uh, week five, during the whole thing about prayer, they had this short piece about the glory of the solar system, and it didn't really make much sense how that tied in with prayer. And then in this uh, week here, it featured who is genuinely my least favorite apologist john lennox talking about science and christianity and i remember that when that bit came i thought why is this here why is this bit here am i reacting this way just because i don't like this person or does this really not belong in in this bit so there was that bit but i'm going to jump quickly over that before one of you two jump on on that there was a claim made i think it was by Gemma, the the female presenter on this thing about sales of the bible and she said something like the bible is barred or doesn't feature on the bestseller book list because it will be number one every week of the year because that's how many books that it sells and again this is that loose relationship with what is actually true that sometimes seeps out of what Christians say and the beauty of making a claim like that is it's quite easy to fact check book sales <laughs> you know why I know there was me genuinely complimenting Alpha in the quality of the production of the videos it's not difficult to make that little extra step and go through and look for when you're making factual claims, which can be fact-checked. And I don't have any of the numbers in front of me, but I did check it at the time, and I've che checked it multiple times. The Bible isn't top of the charts every single week of every single year in number of sales. Yes, there are times when it does outsell everything else. And yes, most years it is the single biggest selling book. I'm not denying those claims. But it isn't every single week of every single year. And to give you a very specific example, the weeks when the Harry Potter books have launched, the sales of the Harry Potter books have gone well beyond sales of the Bible for those weeks. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that if you went and checked, there are a couple of years where a Harry Potter book was published, where for the entire year, Harry Potter books have outsold the Bible. So these are claims that are really, really easy to fact check. Christians be better at things like this because when you make this kind of little mistake here, people doubt you on the other things that you say that are more important. Yeah, I would say it's not the little things like that that really make me doubt them. What really makes me doubt these things are when they start saying things like the pioneers of science were religious. Mm. Yes, they were. But do you know that 98% of the hardest science fields are not religious anymore, which means that the fields of science went from 100% religious or 98% religious to about 98% non-religious. And so they want to say that science doesn't conflict with religion. And that one of the proofs of that is that they want to say that um, the pioneers of science were all religious, but then they conveniently seem to forget or ignore the fact that the vast majority of scientists aren't religious now, and they're not religious because of the endeavor of science, which is in conflict with religions. So that's mm. what that's what uh, gets my hackles up. Akin to that, uh, I'll, I'll echo into what Matthew was saying. 
Sure. Uh, by the way, I, I um, am mad at you for taking the Harry Potter books. I was hoping you weren't going to come across that. And then I was going to say, uh, yeah, if you want to keep the myth alive, don't compare the Bible to any week where J.K. Rowling just released a book. Um, right. So you do it. <laughs> I, I, I did know. Uh, but I'm not sure that wasn't true for the uh, Twilight series. Um, uh, Stephanie Myers and the whole vampire thing. Uh, her books did extraordinarily well, too. I, I don't know whether it's true or not, but here's what I think would put a lie to the numbers. So, yes, maybe the Bible is the best-selling book some weeks. Let's, and, and let's just say that's true 40 weeks out of 52. I have no idea what the actual numbers are. Let's just pretend it's a high percentage. I don't actually care whether a great-grandmother went out and bought 22 Bibles for every one of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I think it would be a lot more interesting to know what vimeographics are buying those books. Here's another one. The, um, the, the, the people that put Bibles in, uh, in hotel rooms, the Gideons. Yeah. Uh, how many Bibles do they buy? Right. And so there's some skewing here of these numbers that I think makes it a, a little unfair by, by way of comparison. And, uh, and, and so I think it's just a way to tell a lie through numbers, like saying there are 2.4 billion Christians in the world. Well, Christians only use that number for shock and awe purposes. If you try to get them all together to come up with some doctrinal agreement about whether you should use instruments of music or how often you should take the Lord's Supper or, uh, you know, can you socially drink or not, pick any issue. Hell, even pick the one where you say, was Jesus the deity son of God or was he just a human? Then all of a sudden you don't have 2.4 billion Christian anythings because they don't agree. And so this, this idea that the Bible's a best-selling book or there's 2.4 billion Christians or, or whatever, it's, it's just a way of using numbers for shock and awe and a little bit of, just a little bit of critical thinking uh, causes the story to break down. And, uh, and so there it is. And how exactly that relates to how and why to read the Bible, I'm not 100% sure. So I'll let, mm. I'll let you guys have the mic back. But yeah. I don't find the stories about the Bible through these kinds of big numbers to be a compelling reason to read the thing. Yeah, that's a pretty good point because um, I'm guessing that they don't actually break down the numbers per version of the Bible, but just mm, collate yeah. them all into one big number. So if you are writing a new translation of the Bible, and, and I think, so just building on that point, so you've got an ESV, right? So that's the, a relatively recent English version, English standard version, sort of um, makes a pretense to replace the NIV. Well, so you got this big reader base, right? And you put out a new translation, and all of a sudden the Christians want to go out and get a new, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like buying a new car, right? Well, here's, here's what you can know. If J.K. Rowling decides to put out the 20th anniversary version of The Sorcerer's Stone, you don't want to release a Bible that week. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm, okay, I'm going to quit kicking. That horse is solidly dead. I <laughs> By the way, are we anywhere close to the... Yeah, I guess we are. Are we close to the 20th anniversary? Didn't... Wasn't the first book in 1999? Do I remember that right? I can't remember. 
don't but know. don't make me type Google halfway through our podcast. <laughs> right, so shall we move on to the last one then? Week yes. Seven, which was how does God talk to us? This this will tie <laughs> the previous two episodes together now, won't it? Yeah. Well, it also makes pre- uh, predictable claims. It actually gives a um, a method mm. to verify if uh, what you're hearing is actually from God. And unfortunately, the method they give pretty much uh, knocks out about 95% of the Bible as being from God. So Expand on that. Expand on that thought. Well, there, the way you verify if something is uh, from God or not is, one, it is in line with the Bible. Uh, what the Bible tells us. Two, it is strengthening, encouraging, comforting. Does it promote love? If it isn't loving, then it didn't come from God. Do you feel a sense of God's peace about the decision? If you don't feel peaceful about it, then it probably isn't right. So I don't know about you, but those last two points uh, pretty much remove about 95% of the Bible as being from God. So There's a surprising amount of stuff in the Bible attributed to God himself, which just doesn't seem to be all that loving, does it? Yeah, well, I mean, he did in person order someone to be uh, killed for picking up sticks on his favorite days, so. Oh, there's uh, the story of Uzzah. So Uzzah's the guy that was assisting with the Ark Covenant, and uh, the Ark uh, becomes unsteady, and you're only supposed to... uh, touch the ark along the poles that uh, go through the rings to carry the ark. And Uzzah, uh, in steadying the ark, puts his hand on the side of it, and God and God strikes him dead. Uh, it, it, all of those things are awful, but then you think, Genesis chapter 7? Oh, what's that one? That's where God kills every damned body on the earth except Noah and his family. Yeah, job where um, he uh, makes a bet with the devil to see if um, Job is loyal or not. Right. Uh, Genesis uh, 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tower of Babel <laughs> where he uh, intentionally uh, yeah, confuses yeah. languages because he doesn't want yeah. uh, people to be able to work together. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's a great one. You got, you've got Moses out on the battlefield fighting with uh, one of the ites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites. I don't know which particular group he's fighting at the time, but God has told Moses that he has to hold his arms up in the air through the battle. And whenever uh, whenever Moses starts to lower his arms, the children of Israel start to lose. And so eventually uh, Moses' brother Aaron comes along and uh, you know, some other helper, and they help hold Moses' arms up. Because of his arms fall, God starts killing Israelites. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's also the Passover and most of Leviticus. And... Oh, man. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. You know what? This is just too easy. It, it's, uh, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, man. <laughs> hey, he's the one that gave us the, uh, the criteria in which we determine these things. So. It's, uh, Matthew, come on, man. You've got to have a favorite God really did that. Kind of start. Really? Did he do that? You gotta have well, a favorite. it's it's the one that you mentioned about the uh, the zapping for reaching out and touching the ark. To, oh, as to a, help. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's. I remember. I must have been a young young lad when I first heard that story. I remember thinking, really? Why? 
Why was right. that? And it was, I think the answer was along the lines of, because it's a holy object, not supposed to touch the holy object. I think, but it was about to fall. Did he really need to be zapped like that? And it, I remember as my memory of my first hearing of that was, yeah, I, I don't like this bit. Yeah. And um, maybe that was the first clue that I was going to go full heathen, but you know, I was still a young child then. I still had all my yak years to live before that event. You know, the so. cult that I was in, we told the story, not only that I was, oh, God, it was loathsome. Oh, it was so loathsome. Uh, we told when children asked about this in Sunday school, because you can't, you can't tell the story of Uzzah without some children intuitively recognizing the things that we recognize that that is a, a horrible wretched awful despicable story and it should never be told to anyone but it gets told in sunday school at least in the church of christ and uh and the children are told not only that god struck us a dead but that us went to hell wow Yes, yeah, I don't remember asking the question was what happened afterwards. Why did I never ask that question? You weren't sufficiently emotionally abused. I'm not kidding. That tongue in cheek. I'm not kidding. I'm not being tongue in cheek. I'm not remotely. I'm not remotely kidding. You were not sufficiently abused about your eternal destiny to ask the question. Okay. I didn't realize it was a competition, but I'm quite happy not to win that one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to turn it into. Look, that was that was me uh, feeling a certain amount of vitriol. Yeah. Uh, toward. Uh, never, look, I'll I'll let it go, Darren. Um, what do you do? You have any other favorite stories? Uh, really, this is the loving God you worship. Maybe the eternal torture chamber. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> hell, slavery, um, the way tra uh, women are treated. I mean. I, I, the whole idea of God having to murder his son in a blood sacrifice in order to forgive people. Um, take your pick. I mean, I, I mean, when I say 95% of the Bible, I actually mean 95% of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just kind of, you just kind of wonder, do, uh, uh, do the non-women in heaven who were women on earth want to start a hashtag me too movement against God? Right. Because because God is not friendly uh, to women. Just ask. Uh, just ask Chris Matheson. <laughs> he, made a, he, made a, he made a point of bringing to the front that God doesn't like women. And it's incredibly rare that he even knows their names. Yeah. Well, I mean, he would rather have a mob rape a woman than um, have the angels stop the mob from doing it so oh genesis 18 man Ooh, nice well man. called out uh. yeah it's um i have you know it's it's so bizarre for me because i've i was never brought up in a christian household or anything like that and it is so bizarre when people say that god is loving or god um wants what's best for us or any of the things that nikki's been saying in this alpha course or that you hear on any of the apologetics websites or anything like that, because the Bible just doesn't read like a book that supports any of that. I mean, you really, really have to cherry pick the passages and completely divorce it from the rest of the Bible in order to even get there. And I mean, I understand that 
70% of the population hasn't actually read the Bible, just heard what the Bible says from their pastors. But the people that actually have read the Bible and still make these claims, I just, I have absolutely no clue how they get there. I don't either. No, I don't. And I think what bothers me a little bit about my Alpha experience up to this week, although obviously I've, I completed Alpha quite some weeks ago, but it's true for the whole of Alpha, but we're only covering up to week seven in this conversation, is, yeah, I'm on board with what you've said about the Bible. There is a lot of stuff that just can't come from a loving God in the Bible. I, I, I just don't get it. But the people that I interacted with on the Alpha course that I was on, Nikki as well, and some of the other Christians that Andrew and I have had on Still Unbelievable, they're all compassionate, caring people. I mean, when Nikki was telling the story of his friend who died on the squash court, you, know, you could see it and hear it in the way that he spoke about the incident. You know, this was somebody he cared about and the loss of that person he cared about still hurts him. And so these are genuinely compassionate people. And I really struggle to mate these compassionate people who I accept as compassionate people who want the best for others and would do things to help others, even if it costs them, with the capriciousness that I see in the Bible and some of the things that we've talking about and how they make that connection across the content that they read and the actions that they take. And the more and more I explore this, and this has really come to the fore with me with Alpha, is, is this disconnect and I, I don't get it. And even trying to think of myself as a Christian, I can't, I, I need to spend some more time thinking it through because I just can't work it out live even. I can't see the connection. Thinking about the the title of this week, How Does God Speak to Us, or a title, anything like that. One of the things that occurs to me is that the, the three of us are uh, not just skeptics. We're, we're atheists uh, and, and all fall close to uh, a seven on the Dawkins scale, right? Um, so we're, we're all, uh, at a minimum, not convinced that there is a God. Um, and, and I don't know if either one of you would say, yeah, I'm just a seven, there's not a God. Um, but here's, here's my point. When you question how God speaks to someone, surely the people that ought to be hearing God most clearly are the sinners. Here's why. The Jesus of the New Testament said, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the sinner. And then you have the God of the New Testament saying, I'm not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to everlasting life. So it very much seems to me that while the Christians say, it is your, it is your broken view of the world, it is your sin that keeps you from seeing the world the way it is, if there were a God, a God who spoke and could be heard in this world, it seems to me that the very people that would hear him the most were the atheists. Now, you can rationalize that I'm wrong in all kinds of ways. 
And I'm just going to call BS on it. Either you've got a God that loves us all and he wants us all to know that he's there and he genuinely cares and doesn't want to lock us in the basement and have us burn forever. Either that's your God or your God is the one who really doesn't give a damn and he's fine if the vast majority of us end up locked in the basement and burn forever. And right now, the only God I see is the latter and not the former. Yeah, and unfortunately, the former isn't actually possible because a God that actually cared wouldn't have created the basement to put us on fire in the first place. Bravo. Matthew, what do you think? Am I just, am I just the typical atheist? And am I wrong? You're typical, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with being typical, you know? (laughs) It's the first time he's going to even admit I'm close to normal, folks. We're (laughs) going to have to... (laughs) He said it about an Apple user. Yeah, there was a a silent A in front of typical. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. So um, this... This third video talked about, um, featured a gentleman, the chap Paul Cowley, who had quite a staggering story about uh, losing his mother early, life in gangs, drink, drugs, prison, finding Alpha, turning his life around, now he's a vicar and he's got an MBE for his work with offenders. Does the kind of person who turns their life around with that after coming into contact with Christians and the message of Christianity, does that kind of story do anything at all to make you stop and think and and ask yourself, am I being too harsh? Is there really something here that's worth investigating? No, but probably not for the reason the audience is thinking. Um, the the interesting thing about human psychology is that lies are just as good or sometimes better at making us change our behavior than the truth is. Um, so if you're told that Christ is this loving being and that's all you really know about it, you really don't know what the Bible says about Christianity. All you know is what people are uh, saying about it. And if you have some sort of drive, um, I mean, if you're not happy with where you're at and you have a drive to actually make a change, um, then any story of that's where you want to be, you know, whether it's loving or maybe the story is that you can get rich on Wall Street. And so that's the change you're going to make. And um, so you're going to get out of the gangs and become a Wall Street uh, tycoon. It doesn't really matter what the story is. As long as you have the motivation to actually make a change, you're going to make the change. Um, It's just that in this guy's case, he happened to latch on to the God story rather than something else. Fair. And I think my, my answer to my own question would be, I would want to see that kind of life turnaround be more normal if Christianity was true the odd person turning their life around like that here and there it's still a minority and as you said something that comes in as a fiction can do that to a minority number of people 
if it was really that great and it was really that powerful and the Holy Spirit really did act that well in people and the the, the story of Jesus was really that convincing to that many people, I would want to see more people like this poor Cowley. Yeah, because it wouldn't be a, um, a newsworthy uh, event at that point. It would just be something that happened all the time. Yes. In my uh, notes here in front of me for group time when we talked this one through and people were talking about instances of God talking to them I've put that there's lots of talk about situations that happened brackets coincidences where God was interpreted to be at work so there was nothing in my group time that was mentioned that made me think twice about it being genuinely God I clearly thought every single one of them was either a coincidence or just a, a retrospective interpretation but my next sentence, my next bullet point is uh, the interesting one. It says, and I'll quote exactly what I've written, pushback when Matthew asked about confirmation. So uh, do you guys want to respond to that sentence? Did you? Uh, so what was the pushback you got when you asked for a confirmation? I, I can't remember. I didn't write down what the pushback was, and I, I haven't written down any of my notes, but I clearly asked about how do you confirm that these things are are from God. Yeah, usually uh, it's all about the feelings. Um, I heard that a lot. Yeah, I did hear yeah. things about feelings quite a lot. Yeah, it's sort of weird because I, I guess you, you guys would have to confirm this, but apparently a lot of Christians, they're told when they're really young that their feelings are God talking to them. And so if you have something as visceral as your feelings constantly, you know, informing your decisions uh, what feels good what feels bad what um uh what makes you happy uh what makes you ecstatic what makes you feel awe then i guess if that's your definition of verification for god i guess that would be a fairly convincing thing i just don't find it very plausible since i actually know how feelings work in the body yeah, the last point that I've got in my notes here was there was a challenge to the group uh, at the end of the group to inverted commas, listen for God. And I thought I knew what that would mean when I was a Christian. It probably ties into what you've just said, Darren, about feelings and uh, just feeling for changes in mood or emotion or that feeling in our gut that we normally attribute to, to butterflies or nervousness. But now as an out atheist, I just don't understand what that phrase means i don't get it i can't connect with what a christian might mean when they say that it's clearly tied into the belief in an existence of god i can't listen for something talking to me when i can't even accept that that thing exists did you ask if god was a baritone or a tenor <laughs> oh you're so mean <laughs> so many. See, that's why I'm the nice one because I wouldn't have thought to ask that sort of question. Just saying, if you're actually listening for God to talk to you, yeah, it'd be nice to know what His voice sounds like, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, metaphorical listening, but yeah, I, I do get your point. You're so naughty. It's one of those things that once uh, Christians start getting all metaphorical, it's I sort of tune out just because. I question whether they even know what they're talking about at that point. I was speaking to a Christian on this exact, this exact topic uh, just within the last couple of weeks. 
uh, about hearing God. Uh, so this is a family member, and I can't I, I can't do better with identification than that because um, uh, because it would be unfair. I, I sincerely think that this person is is slightly disturbed. Uh, but this family member was telling me that that he hears God, that God talks to him. And by talks to him, I mean tells him things about the future and here's how you can know that I'm me and then something will happen and, you know, it's sort of this prophecy thing and, and there's this confirmation of God. So I asked this question about what God sounds like because I, I, think, it's, I think it's fascinating for people to say that they hear God. Right? So I wanted to know, does what does God sound like in your head? What vocabulary does God use? Uh, what is God's intonation? Those, those kinds of questions. We talked about this for a good hour and a half. Uh, and what eventually came out as I, as I continued to press for what God sounds like, because I can't have this conversation and, and not uh, sound like I think the, the person probably needs to get some professional help. Uh, and I don't mean that uh, that's that's not being derisive. I, I really am concerned about this person. But he said to me, well, it's my own voice. But God says to me the things that I can't think myself. Again, I'm not being derisive. For me, that is, in, that is incredibly sad. This is part of the Christian story. To convince a person that they're so broken, that there are kinds of things, there are big thoughts and big ideas that can't come from inside them. And it is heartbreaking to realize that one of the keys to Christianity, to this idea that God should speak to you, is that you're broken and that you need someone outside to speak big things into your head because you can't do it on your own yeah i feel sad for that but see the thing is andrew we were both once in a time when that was a, a faithful attitude to hold and a and a righteous thing to say but i yeah. feel really sad hearing that now yeah i and so this this person uh, by the way i i care deeply about this person he's an important part of the family uh much more integral to the family in fact than i am uh, but this this person he can't see himself in a in a whole way in a way that that one of us can and I, I'll, I'll make this call now if you're if you're one of these people and Christianity has so broken you that you can't be a whole person without thinking that God is speaking into your head press stop on this podcast and go find someone, a professional to talk to. You will be glad you did because if you're listening, you're not a broken person. You may have problems, but problems don't equal broken. No. It just means yeah. you're a person with a problem. Yeah, and make sure that you don't get a Christian psychologists, they'll just exasperate the problem, not fix it. Yes. In fact, if you can't find a secular therapist 
you can send an email to reasonpress at gmail.com and I will find one for you. Yeah, there's also Leave the website. Me your zip code. Yeah, yep, there's also ahead. the website for secular. Um... That's at recoveringfromreligion.org. And at the top of the page, you will see a link for the Secular Therapy Project. You can go in. And the, the, the slight issue with the, with the Secular Therapy Project is that they're going to want your contact information up front. The reason they are is so that they can pair you with a therapist. Um, so don't let that put you off. Uh, if, you, if you are hearing voices in your head, that is not a religious issue. That is a mental health issue. And you can, by all means, go to recoveringfromreligion.org and go to the Secular Therapy Project. If you're not comfortable giving out your information, reach out and just give me your zip code. Okay, uh, sorry, that sort, of, that sort of derailed, but the, the problem is, this is what it means to talk about having God speak to someone. At least part of this, not the whole conversation, is about mental health. But there is an element of this conversation where people think God is speaking into their heads. And uh, so anyway, we've, we've done the PSA. And, <laughs> and uh, there it is. So. Uh, and it's important for people to know. And by the way, if you think you don't want to talk to a therapist while we're on recoveringfromreligion.org, uh, you can also click on the Hotline Project. The Hotline Project is, is there 24 hours a day now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we used to not be there um, uh, 24 hours a day because we didn't have enough people to staff all of the time. And so we staffed the, the most likely hours, which were nights and weekends. But I think you can get in touch with somebody 24 hours a day now. So if you, if you are feeling uh, anxious, if you've got religious questions, if you just need someone to talk to, and you don't want it to be your preacher, go to recoveringfromreligion.org, click on the hotline project. There'll be an 800 number at the top of the page. Give us a call. There will be an agent to talk to you. Uh, by, by the way, everything said on Still Unbelievable is said with my own name and should not be considered as, a, uh, as me representing recovering from religion. So uh, there you go. I think that's nicely bringing us into the wrap up. My, my thoughts really are the talking to God, whether it be through prayer or through reading the Bible or through other things. I didn't find anything in any of these three weeks of Alpha convincing for me. There was way too much on personal experience and personal interpretation and what felt like was was right. And as you heard that when I asked about confirmation, that really wasn't a feature. It wasn't a feature in the videos. It wasn't a feature in the conversations. Is it a feature for your life if you're a Christian? And I think for for me, these three weeks just cemented that I've made the right decision to leave Christianity because there isn't really anything there to talk to. I have bigger issues about mental health and emotional well-being when with some of the messaging of Christianity. I think Darren hinted at it earlier about telling people that they're wretched and worthless. And I think Andrew did the right call in 
talking about seeking help if, if you need it. I want to echo that. But that's my wrap up from the conversation that we've had. Either of you two want to have give your final thoughts? Yeah, I've, um, you know, again, coming from a um, non-religious background, I honestly just don't get it. I mean, Nikki seems like a great guy. Uh, he seems nice. Um, he comes across as so nice that it kind of seems fake at times. Um, that's how nice mm. he comes across. Mm. Um, but I'm obviously I'm not saying that it is fake. I'm just saying it sort of has that so nice that it feels fake type of thing. But I'm sure he's genuine. I'm sure he's uh, sincere in everything he says. The problem is, is that what he says does not accurately, accurately reflect the Bible. So when he says things like, um, is, you know, whatever you're thinking in line with the Bible, um, and then right after that says, does it promote uh, love? You know, is it loving? Did it, then it seems like there's just a huge disconnect there. And it just seems to me that someone who reads their Bible every day, like he does, is either not reading the entire Bible or is just living with a huge um, cognitive di cognitive dissonance on what exactly it is that the Bible's saying. And I just can't, as an outsider, I just don't see how, why anyone would want to pray or why anyone would want to read the Bible or why anyone would think that a God is guiding us, especially given the um, problem the problems of okay, if he's guiding us by through other people, then is he controlling those other people? I mean, is do you throw out uh, the Christian view of free will when God starts guiding people? I don't know. It just seems all it just all seems very incoherent to me. Uh, and um, so that's the view of the guy that was never religious. I can't Thank you, that. Darren. Matthew, do you want to take us out or do you want me to? Yeah, okay, no, I'll take you out. And Darren asked a question about the YouTube channel that I'll, I'm going to feature on. I think it's called Talk Beliefs with uh, Mark Torrendor. And I hope I've pronounced that name correctly. That will be corrected if it was wrong. At some point, I need to email Mark before the end of the weekend and get that sorted out. And uh, hopefully by the time you next hear an episode of Still and Believe, well, that, uh, that conversation with Mark will have been sorted and with that thank you everybody i hope this wasn't too tedious for you thank you for listening thank you both of you for watching the videos and coming on and talking to me and until next time good night you have been listening to a podcast by reason press to get in touch email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website reasonpress.net where you'll also find our book still unbelievable we welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.